Hello and welcome. My name is Christy Potter and I'm the director of the January series and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the January series 2018. It is so good to be together again. This is our 31st year and we are very grateful to all of our amazing sponsors who have helped bring these daily lectures year after year for free to our communities. And in particular today, as we begin the series, I'd like to thank Baker Publishing and the Doug and Maria DeVos Foundation for being our series partners and the Meyer Company and Howard Miller for being our community partners. I hope that you will find ways to thank them as well. Each day we're going to give a special welcome to a few of our 52 remote webcast sites all around the country and across the continent. So today I'd like to give a warm welcome from snowy Michigan to our friends at the three brand new sites in 2018, New Brighton, Minnesota, Asheville, North Carolina, and Winchester, Virginia. Welcome to them. <laughs> Details about silencing your phone and submitting questions for the Q&A at the end of the presentation will be given each day, as you saw, um, by recordings um, before we begin. So we won't repeat that each day, but I do want to make sure you take note of that. And finally, I'd like to encourage all our Kelvin students in the audience to pick up one of these January series passports, get it stamped at the box office each day when you attend, and when you attend at least seven of them, you can turn them in at the end of the series and we'll have autographed books and some other prizes available for you. So just a special incentive to our students. And now Michael Leroy, president of Kelvin College, is gonna open us with prayer. Thank you. Good afternoon, and I am so grateful for the January series, and because I'm so grateful for the January series, I'm so grateful to Christy Potter, <laughs> aren't we all? So I want to welcome each and every one of you, wherever you are listening from and watching from, and as we celebrate this gift that, that is to the community, we're grateful to all of our sponsors as we step forward into an, hear, another year of hearing wonderful world-class speakers. But as we begin this series, it is fitting to give thanks to God, and so I invite you to come with me in prayer. God of all truth, we entrust our lives and our learning to you. For deep is your wisdom and knowledge. Your judgments are unsearchable, and yet, you allow us to respond to you through heart, soul, strength, and mind in so many ways. And so we ask now that your spirit might come down and speak through Mary today as we pray that we might be open to the hope of Christ that is eternal, the hope that anchors the church and transforms the world. Amen. At this time, I'd like to introduce to you my friend, Dr. Neil Plantinga, who also is the former president of Calvin Seminary. Welcome. The Reverend Dr. Mary Holst is the Calvin College chaplain. Students and colleagues cherish from her her wisdom, her warmth, her wit. She loves students and she loves God's word, and the combination is priceless. She preaches on campus most Sundays, and she does so as one who has authority. She's an alumna of both Calvin College and Calvin Theological Seminary. Her PhD is from the University of Illinois. She has been a senior pastor, a member of the college faculty, a member of the seminary faculty, she lectures and consults on preaching all over the place, and she is a fine author. You may meet Mary and her recent book in the west lobby of this building after the presentation. Meanwhile, Calvin College is grateful to Shirley and Jeff Hoogstra for underwriting today's presentation. Please welcome Mary Holst. Thank you. 
This is why I love my job. Aren't they awesome? It is my joy to speak to you today about two things that I love, millennials and the church. And yeah, for real, I do. And um, I've done research both anecdotally, and I've spent some time interviewing people very specifically about this topic, as well as reading widely. My associate chaplains and I led a seminar on this last summer, so this has been something that's been in me for a while. I'm delighted to share it with you. Let's start with some definitions of who are the millennials. We're going to walk through some generations, and when I have your generation on the screen, raise your hand. I recommend they do this at the remote sites as well, and let's just see who's in the house. All right, age 73 to 91. Yep, very good. Okay, our boomers, 54 to 72. Good. Gen Xers, my people, 36 to, yes, good. Millennials? Woo! Yes, just like the data shows, they are the largest generation. They are also the largest group here today. Anybody zero to 13? Yes, we're so glad you're here. Thank you for being here. This is a delight. So some statistics about the millennials. They're more likely to have a college degree than Gen Xers. They're the first generation, though, to earn less over their lifetimes than their parents did. I know, some of you are like, ah. <laughs> uh, uh. Meaning, they also have loans, $40,000 in loans. So if you combine these things together, they're less likely to earn more than their parents did. They have more loans. They're more likely to live in poverty. We're starting out on a good note, aren't we? <laughs> this is why they live at home with their parents. This is not the preferred arrangement for millennials or their parents. This has to do with all of the data that's leading up to this. They have more debt, and they're not going to make as much. They have significant impact. This is not a surprise to you. 90% of them have a smartphone, which they touch on average 45 times a day. They make half of their purchases online. They're 30% of the retail sales in the United States. And this is significant. They would much rather spend their money on an experience than a thing. So if you're in marketing, if you're in sales, pay attention to this. They want companies that give back to society. They give back to society. 84% of them make charitable donations. Heads up, Rick Truer. 84% of them make charitable donations. 70% of them volunteer. Now, this is a counter to what we often hear about millennials. They're entitled, they're selfish, they're lazy. That data just does not prove that. They are creative. They're excited. They love to produce content. They love to share it. This may be a rap song that they put on Bandcamp. It could be their latest photography adventure that gets on Instagram. It could be a poem that they put on Facebook. They love to produce to get out there. They are half of the United States workforce. They love to start things. One third of all entrepreneurs in the United States in 2014 were millennials. Half of them have already started a business or they want to. And this is significant. If you are managing a millennial, if you're supervising a millennial, they love immediate feedback. The days of the annual review are over. They want you to be more like a coach, coming in, speaking in, giving them feedback immediately. How did that presentation go? What could I do better? What can I do differently next time? 44% of the millennials in the United States are ethnic minorities. They are very good at adapting to culture. This is a sensitivity that is growing in them. Here at Calvin College, we have over 580 international students. If you're a Calvin alum who graduated, let's say, more than 30 years ago, when you were here, the most common surname was DeVries. The most common surname at Calvin College now is Kim. These are the differences that are shaping this generation. Now, Facebook stats. 27% of them only use Facebook less than once a week. 11% of them have no Facebook. Now, this does mean that 89% of them have Facebook. 
Couple other stats on social media platforms. You'll still see that uh, there's a mix. Some people may have one or two, some people may have the other two. There are commonalities among them. Fun fact, every social media platform except one is dominated by women. The one that is dominated by men is LinkedIn. <laughs> every other platform, the majority of users are female. Fun fact, they are much more willing to digitally detox on vacation than are their parents and grandparents. They know the role that technology plays, and they're happy to set it aside. Now, that's all interesting, it's good data, but why are we here today? Because we hear this thing over and over and over again. Millennials are leaving the church. Millennials are leaving, they're just leaving the church in droves. We just hear this, it's kind of out there in the ether. But being at a college, being at a place where we do research, we need to ask the question, is this true? What's the data? And right here at Calvin College, we have a great sociology professor who's actually studied this. His name is Jonathan Hill, and he wrote this great little book called Emerging Adulthood in Faith. See how, see how thin it is? It's very easy to read. Part of the Calvin Short series will be available at the book table afterwards for the remote sites. You can get it through the Calvin College bookstore. A great book. Jonathan took his data from the General Social Survey, which has been around since 1972, tracking trends in the United States. And this is one of the charts in his book. If you take a look, you see that the dashed line goes way up. The dashed line are the number of people in the ages of 18 to 29 who never attend church. The line that goes a dash and then a dot they're the ones who attend Protestant church a few times a year at most. These are your Christmas and Easter Christians. The black line, those are the folks who attend Protestant church nearly every week or more. Now look at that black line. It's stable. It's not moving. Here's what Jonathan says. The pews of Protestant churches today are filled with roughly the same percentage of emerging adults as 40 years ago. <laughs> Here's what to notice. While regular Protestant attenders are stable, those who never attend, which we're calling the nuns, not like the ones with a habit, sound of music kind of nuns, but the ones who don't go to church, the nuns, double in size from 15 to 30%. So what we're seeing is something like this. Grandpa was a Methodist minister. Mom grew up in the Methodist church. When you were born, mom and dad had you baptized in the Methodist church. But you went to church maybe just on Christmas and Easter and whenever you visited grandpa and grandma. You've been weekly affiliated. For your parents, it wasn't a significant priority. And so for you, there's not a strong affiliation. And so you drift away. So when we say, when you hear that millennials are leaving the church, that's not accurate because a lot of them have never really been in the church. They haven't been rooted and established in the church the way we think about people being in the church. Another chart from Jonathan's book. This is how strongly someone affiliates with their religion. Again, you see the dash and the dot, those are the weekly affiliated, the Christmas and Easter folks. The dash line are those who have never had a religious affiliation. Do you see how those who have never had a religion, that's like a, an influence? But the black line, those who strongly affiliate, steady, straight. Jonathan says, the wrong conclusion is that the rise of the nuns is coming at the expense of the church. This is simply not true. At least in terms of religious participation, there is no evidence that the current crop of young people are somehow drastically different from previous generations. At least among Protestants, every concerned pastor and parent should know this, the percentage of young people with a strong Protestant identity and the percentage who regularly practice their faith privately and publicly has barely budged over the past 40 years. They are in your churches, your youth groups, your Bible studies. Yes, 
Something has been happening on the margins, but the center has held. Now I think, oh, this is great. You know, we can be done. Let's go to lunch. <laughs> Problem solved. Like, whoo, this is such good news. Like, ah, this is great. But we have significant differences that we're charting in this emerging adult population. Emerging adulthood itself is becoming a new stage of life. So we're seeing people that are moving and they're having a new stage. It used to be teenager, adult, moving on. Now we've got emerging adults, and the millennials are the first generation that's really showing us what this looks like. So we're going to look at the external realities for the millennials and some internal realities for the millennials. Here's a significant one. There's a delay of marriage and parenthood. These have been somewhat the traditional markers of adulthood. You get married, you become a parent, you settle down. But what we're seeing is that the median age for marriage is becoming much later. In 1960, 22 for men, 20 for women. In 2016, 28 for men, 26 for women. So there's this gap now. It used to be that you finished your season of formal education, whether that was vocational school or college or nursing school, whatever it was. You got married. You had a child. And often those moves. Either kept you in the church or brought you back to the church. What we're finding is that we have this gap where people finish their formal education and they don't get married and don't become parents until later in life. In fact, many of them, by the time they kind of finish college, they're they're not really looking for the next marker to be marriage or parenthood. And so your children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, have asked me to ask you to stop asking them if they're dating anyone. <laughs> They will tell you when there's something to tell you. <laughs> Just trust them on that. There's this gap. There's this delay. And so what we're finding. Is that emerging adulthood? This stretch of time is a time of life when many different directions are possible, when little about the future has been decided for certain, when the scope of independent exploration of life's possibilities is greater for most people than it will be at any other period of the life course. Now, this can sound exciting. The world is your oyster. You can do anything, and it can sound like、oh, I don't know what to do next. I have anxiety. I don't know what to do. In fact, when I was talking to one young woman, she said, "Your church shouldn't have groups that are for college people and for post-college people." She said, "College people generally know what's next. You, you take this next semester of classes. You do an internship. You get a job. They kind of haven't." She said, "After college, we're not quite sure what's next. We're asking different questions. We need different groups." All right, significant cultural shift in the United States from pro-Christian to being neutral to being anti or post-Christian. In 1964, the Los Angeles Times put daily Bible readings in the paper. I know, gasp! What? They actually did that. Some of you came of age when there were blue laws that said there were certain things we weren't going to do on Sundays. You couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays. You couldn't shop on Sundays. In some communities, you couldn't hunt on Sundays. Sundays were set aside culturally as a different type of day. Now we live in a 24/7 culture where many of our young people's first jobs require them to work on Sundays. Additionally, as I talk to our young people. What I'm hearing more and more is that there is reticence to take on the label Christian, particularly within the last 18 to 24 months. The word Christian has become associated with significant baggage words, and our young people, people who love Jesus, who love to worship, who love the Bible. Are wondering if they can be called Christian. Christian has come to mean certain things. 
They say, I don't want to be named as a racist or a sexist or homophobic. I don't want to be anti-refugee or anti-immigrant. These, these things are getting caricatured in American society, and I don't want to be a part of that. So I don't know how to navigate these things because when I get a new job and I show up and someone notices that I'm wearing a cross or the calendar on my desk is daily Bible verses and they say, are you a Christian? I don't know how they're asking that. And I'm not quite sure how to answer. So the cultural dynamic in which the emerging young adults who are around us right now are being reared is changing. They value a culture of tolerance. A culture of tolerance. Researchers found that most emerging adults operate from an ultimate value of tolerance, fueled by the notion that beliefs and actions are up to the individual to decide. Emerging adults believe the most one should ever do toward influencing another person is to ask him or her to consider what one thinks. You can't make anybody do anything, so don't even try to influence them. Since most emerging adults believe that hurting another person is the only absolute moral affront, confrontation is often vilified as a positively immoral practice. Let me tell you how that shows up in my work. A young person comes in and sits down, and we're talking about a number of things, and he says to me, okay, um, I really need to tell my roommate that he's got to take a shower and wash his sheets. But I don't want to hurt his feelings. Okay, so I've been dating this guy for a while. I know it's not going anywhere. We have different value systems. It's, it's, it's really got to end. I know I need to end it, but I don't really want to hurt his feelings. Or even... You know, I know this person, and she goes out, she's drinking every weekend, she's hungover most of the time, but I, I'm not going to say anything to her about that. I know this guy, he's sleeping with his girlfriend, he's having unprotected sex, it's very, very, I'm, I'm not going to say anything about that. There's a motto. You may have heard it, you may have said it. You do you. You do you. I'm not going to say a thing. You know, you just, you do you. If that's how you want to spend your money, if that's how you want to spend your time, if that's the kind of people you want to hang out with, you do you. You just do you. And I'll just be doing me over here away from you because I think you're crazy. <laughs> you do you. So those are the external realities. Let's think about some of the internal realities. Something that we're finding more and more. Loneliness. Look at these statistics. The number of Americans with no close friends has tripled since 1985. Research has found that loneliness is contagious. You're 52% more likely to feel lonely if someone you're directly connected to is lonely. How do they know this? Lonely people are less able to pick up on positive social stimuli, like others' attention and commitment singles, so they withdraw prematurely, in many cases, before they're actually socially isolated. Their inexplicable, inexplicable withdrawal may, in turn, make their close connections feel lonely, too. So, you have a standing lunch date with somebody every Wednesday. You meet at the dining hall, you meet wherever it is, and one, one day that person doesn't come, and they text you, I'm so sorry, I'm running late, something happened, and you feel like, wow, am I not a priority anymore? And the next week, uh, you decide, well, I'm, I, maybe I just won't go, and, the choice that you make to withdraw means that you become more lonely and that other person becomes more lonely. And we all know how texts can be misunderstood. So someone could be writing you and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm late, I'll be right there, and you can hear it as, I'm so sorry, I'm late, I'll be right there. Right? And so there's this inability to pick up on cues. Is this person invested in me? Is there not? And the, the assumption is they're not. The assumption is, no one's really committed to me. And what happens then with loneliness is that we all, no matter our generation, we tend to self-soothe by going online. 
So I'm feeling lonely, I'll spend some time on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've spent 20 minutes on Twitter, I very rarely feel more centered. <laughs> I don't love people more. That's not the way it works. I'm agitated, I don't feel good. So these things that we're actually trying to do to self-soothe don't work, and chief among them is pornography. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry that is targeting your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your friends. Millennials make up 60% of those who access porn online. This is not someone else's problem, folks. Are you talking about this in your church? Does it come up in your congregational prayers? Is it an illustration in your sermons? Do you have groups available? Very briefly, Covenant Eyes is an accountability software program. I know a lot of people for whom it's been very helpful. Fight the new drug. If you are thinking, wow, I think she's really overplaying this pornography thing, go to Fight the New Drug and read it. And they have this great program called Fortify. If you're sitting here right now, no matter what your age, and you are well aware that this is your problem, go, get help. Fortify is terrific, tell somebody. There's so much shame and isolation that comes with pornography, and we as the Church of Jesus Christ can stand against it. We are called to do it. Loneliness. Millennials want to be part of something bigger than themselves. As we saw from the statistics earlier, they're not going to out-earn their parents. They're not going to have material markers that say they've made it. So what they want to do is invest in something that's bigger than themselves. I want to be someone who goes and teaches English in China for two years. I want to go help Haiti and, and work in healthcare. I want to make a difference right here in my neighborhood. I want to be part of something that's bigger than me. Justice is a central value for millennials. They have access now to 24-7 news, which means they have access to 24-7 pain. They know the pain and sorrow and heartbreak of the world, and they want to do something about it. In fact, if you're having a conversation with a millennial and you're not quite sure why they're particularly passionate about something, ask them, how does this fit into your understanding of justice? Race, LGBT care, sex, money, climate change. How does this fit into your understanding of justice? I accidentally clicked. This is great. Researchers say, we've been amazed at their willingness, your willingness, to address the monumental challenges of the day, caring for orphans, setting up barriers to human trafficking, building relationships with villages in developing countries, and embracing leadership challenges in churches worldwide. This is what millennials are doing. They are out there. They're having at it. Not surprisingly, they don't much trust government to do what's right. And let me be clear, it doesn't matter the government, it doesn't matter the party. They believe they can only count on themselves to create the change they want to see, and they typically pursue that change as everyday change makers. This influences what they buy, the clothes they wear, the food they eat. For millennials, doing good is a lifestyle. It's the norm. It's a foundational part of their identity. So when your child comes home and says, do we really need another flat-screen TV? When your child comes home and says, you know what, I've decided to be a vegan, it's probably coming out of this, this quest for justice, this quest for righteousness. And let us be clear, justice is at the heart of God. Justice is a passion of God's. And so our millennials are rising up and saying, we want to act in ways that are after God's own heart. What does this all mean for the church? Now we've had some data. What does this actually mean? What are we talking about here? Millennials want substance. They want substance in the church. And particularly, they want substance in two areas. The first is in worship. 
Let me caricature for just a minute. Three unrelated songs, a couple of announcements, a sermon, and another unrelated song. Not substantial. I'd like to point out it's the millennials who are clapping right then. <laughs> they want substance. They want your worship to be deep and meaty and address the things that they are bringing into the sanctuary. Ask this question, does your worship tell the gospel story? If your worship does not mention sin and it does not mention Jesus, it is not telling the gospel story. There has been this tendency to say we're not gonna do confession anymore because that's kind of ugly and we don't want people to have bad feelings in worship. Guess what? They're bringing bad feelings into worship. They need, we need to have sin and injustice and pain named in the worship service so that we can hear how Jesus meets us in our sin and in our pain and in the injustice and changes it. Worship has to have substance. I could go on for this for a while, but we're just gonna keep moving. Because <laughs> there's this other thing I'm kind of passionate about. They want substance in preaching. And they're not the only ones. Here's a Gallup poll for all generations just done this spring. You see the first two reasons why people choose a church, preaching. Sermons that teach you about scripture or sermons that connect religion to your life. The bottom one, music. So what are you spending the time and energy of your church on? Does your church have a way to evaluate, invest in, and improve the preaching? This is the thing. I've heard this again and again and again from all ages, and particularly millennials. Why do you go to this church? I really like the preaching. No one has ever said to me, in my years of being college chaplain, I love this band. The preaching is kind of meh, but the music's awesome. <laughs> they laugh at that. So, heads up. This is the shameless self-promotion part. I wrote this book. You may find it helpful. <laughs> Specifically, chapter 10 has to do with how to get feedback on your preaching. If you are an elder or a board member, if you're on a worship committee, buy the book. You can just buy one and make lots of copies of chapter 10. I won't tell University Press. This isn't about selling books. This is about investing in the preaching life of the church. Because this generation wants to hear the gospel. Invest in the preaching life of your church. These are the questions they want you to answer. What do we believe? You may think, are you kidding me? I paid like thousands of dollars in tuition for them to figure that out at school. Do I, do, what is the deal? I find in talking to young adults, that they have a lot of structure around their faith life. Uh, often in high school, whether or not they went to a Christian school, or maybe young life, or maybe other things. In college, they either seek out Christian groups or they're part of a Christian college. They get done, they've lost that structure, and that's when they actually start to ask the big questions. What do we believe? What do we believe about Jesus and the atonement what, what do we actually believe about the Trinity? What do we believe about baptism? Why do some people baptize babies and other people baptize old people? Like, what's going on there? Why do we believe this? Why do we believe that Jesus is the only way? Now remember the chart at the beginning. Remember the nuns, the people who have left the church that's our young people's friends. That's their friends. Those are the people that they love and know. And so when we say things like Jesus is the exclusive way, this is, they're like, wait, what about my friends? Help me understand that in terms of justice and fairness. Help me think that through because this isn't a hypothetical question for me. We have more and more students at Calvin who are here as believers and they have parents who are not believers. These questions are not hypothetical for them. What difference does it make? What difference does it make if I believe in Jesus? What difference does it make for you if you believe in Jesus? What difference does the Trinity make? What difference does the sacrament make? 
Why do we do this? The bread, what's this about? What difference does it make? Here's a big one. What if my experience of God is different than what I've been taught about God? So we have a generation of people who have grown up, many of them, in churches where the goal of the morning worship service on Sunday was to evoke a certain feeling. And the feeling was joy and positivity and God is in control and yay! And they get to be 18, 19, 20 and they start to run into the buzz saws of life and they think, wait a minute, I was kind of taught that faith and feeling go together. If my feelings are despair and hopelessness, I don't know how to think about my faith. Or I've been taught that feeling the presence of God was a significant goal for the spiritual life and I've gone through weeks and weeks and weeks and I don't feel the presence of God. What, what does that mean? We need to decouple this idea that how you feel affects the presence or absence of God or truth or Jesus. Like, thanks be to God, how I feel really does not impact the Trinity's makeup in one way or another. (laughs) But we need to teach them that. We need to be explicit about that, and we need to create space so that they can bring into worship the harder feelings of life. Authenticity, big buzzword for millennials. Think about it this way. You have one Twitter account that's anonymous, You can say on that Twitter account anything you want to say. You've got this other Twitter account that people actually know about, and they know it's you, and you got your name on there, and you post things like, you know, your drink at Starbucks and stuff like that. (laughs) You have the Facebook account your mom knows about. (laughs) And then you have the Facebook account that just a few people know about, just a specialized group of people know about. And so you're, you're navigating these platforms on social media, taking on and off different hats and putting on and off different identities all the time, and it's exhausting. You want to be able to go to church and be in a community of people who are real, who aren't trying to present themselves as something they're not. The other thing to be very aware of is that this generation has come of age at a time when anything they do or say can be photographed or videoed and put up for all the world to see. Can you imagine, those of you older than the age of 30, if your college experience had been photographed and videoed and put up for all the world to see? That creates anxiety, it creates vulnerability, it creates a sense of, am I ever safe to really be who I am? Can I come into worship and cry or raise my hands or kneel and know that no one's going to take a picture of it? No one's going to ask me, you're just going to let me be in worship? Think about how you use social media in your churches. Are you just simply photographing people, doing their thing? Have you asked their permission? Or are you creating safe space where it's like, you, you do you for Jesus here. And it's good and we'll be safe and you can be authentic and be who you are. Mentors. Huge. This comes up in the research over and over and over again. They want older adults who are connecting to them and pouring into them and making time for them. They value you, Gen Xers and Boomers and Depression Era. They really do. They really think you're cool. One of the... Yes. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) One of the titles of one of my research articles was Put Away the Skinny Jeans. Young people don't want hip pastors. And I was like, thanks be to God. That's that's great. Works for me. They really want mentors who will facilitate the development, the nurture, and at times the correction of their growing faith, gently, you know, be, be gentle, relationship and vocational commitments. They want you to speak into their lives. 
You'll love this if you're a parent. Commendation from non-parental adults may be received as more objective and interpreted as more legitimate. Similarly, parental challenges and demands may be viewed as impositions or attributed to past issues rooted in personal history. The very same demands, sometimes phrased in the exact same way, coming from a non-parental adult, may be interpreted as a healthy challenge or a proper push toward personal involvement. I couldn't get through that without some of you laughing. <laughs> Parents in the house say yes. So when your child comes home, and you've been saying six months this thing over, hey, have you thought about this? I think you should think about this. Why don't you think about it this way? And they come home and they say, you know what? My coach said something to me, and I've just been thinking about it. And they say the thing that you've said for six months. In that moment, restrain, restrain, and say not. I've been telling you that for six months. Say, I'm so glad that person is in your life. <laughs> Tell me more. What else did that person say that was so brilliant? They want the church to engage the world. When I come into worship, do I feel like I'm still part of the world? Or do I feel like that's a little bubble where we don't mention the pain of the world? Someone said specifically to me, are the headlines in worship? Are you bringing the headlines? And are you praying for things? Are you talking about the Rohingya? Are you talking about nuclear war? Are you talking about race? Are you talking about things in the life of the church? And not just the big, big, big picture things, but also the neighbor things. An inescapable theme across many of the churches we studied. They want to be the best possible neighbors within their city. The churches growing young consistently showed high involvement and creativity in their commitment to be good neighbors and to involve young people in the process. Huge. They want the church to welcome their friends. So imagine if an emerging young adult from your congregation comes to you and says this, I have a, a friend that I met on a semester abroad and she's coming to visit me and I'm so excited. And she's really curious about the church and she's really curious about Jesus. But she's a Muslim and she wears a hijab. So when I bring her into the church, will you wave me over and invite me to sit with her next to you? Or imagine if they said, I'm working uh, with, a, with a non-believer, a, a nun, someone who's had no exposure to church, and I'd love to bring that person into worship with me. So when you lead worship, could, could you just walk through why we do what we do in worship so that my friend won't be lost and actually that would be really helpful for me too? Or this. Will you welcome me, the kid that you had in Sunday school, the kid that was in youth group, the kid who went on that mission trip with you? Will you welcome me and invite me to come and sit with you if I tell you that I'm gay? Will you, will you let me sit with you even though I don't know what being gay and Christian is gonna look like for me, but I want to figure it out? Will you let me sit with you if I'm still trying to figure out if I could live a life of celibacy, if that sounds like a joy-filled and flourishing existence, or if I just don't know yet, can I, can I be in a space where I don't know and be loved and be safe? They want the church to welcome them. They want the church to welcome their friends. They don't just want from, they're also ready to give. Remember the entrepreneurial spirit? They bring that to the church. What if we did this? What if we tried this? I talked to one young woman who realized that her friends were kind of drifting away from church after graduation. And she, as she was talking about them, what she heard again and again was, I don't know where to meet people. Where do you meet people? I'm a freelancer. I don't meet people at work. I don't want to go to, where do I? So she said, hmm, I'm going to start something, which she wasn't super, like, she didn't want to be like, oh, I'm going to start something. She was like, I need to start something. It was like the Holy Spirit was like. <laughs> and so she began a group that, that meets once a month on Sunday nights. And here's, there are many layers to her genius, but here's one of them. Everybody gets a personal 
word of mouth invitation to come to the group. There's no mass marketing, there's no Twitter feed. It's, I run into somebody that I think is cool and would enjoy this group, and I say, Sunday, will you come? I'll be there. And so when a young person walks into an event, may not know anybody else, they know that one person, and that one person walks over to them and greets them and says, I'm so glad you came, come on, sit with me. Personal invitation, word of mouth. And I said to her, where do you think this is gonna go? They've been meeting now, they've had speakers, they hang out, she said, I don't know where it's gonna go. But she said, let me tell you how I think the marker of success would be. If one of the people who shows up on Friday night, is sit, uh, Sunday night, is sitting at home on a Friday night alone, and that person gets a text that says, hey, a bunch of us are going to a movie, and we want you to come. She says, that's success. They're not measuring success by the number of butts in the seats of pews. They're measuring success by the depth of relationship. What if we, what if we did this? What if we tried this? Many of us can't worship on Sunday morning. Can we, can we meet on Tuesday nights? Can that, can that count as church? Can we do that? Is that like a thing we could do? That'd be so helpful to me and my friends. Millennials need to feel that they're progressing and learning. If they feel they're stagnating or worse, falling behind, their ambitions will not allow them to sit by. If your church is stagnating, if you're not falling behind, and you don't ask them their opinion, they will not stay. Ask them what they think. What do you think about this? What should we do here? Hey, I understand that you're getting a master's in accounting. You know what? We would love to have you just sit in on our finance committee and just help us think through some things. We're gonna use uh, some art for Lent. I, I see that you post really cool things on Instagram. Would you, would you mind just talking with us about ideas that we could have? Invite them in. Words of death for a millennial. <laughs> Invite them in, they want to be engaged. This is a group of people that have grown up with internships and hands-on learning. Are there internships to figure out how to be a deacon? How to be an elder? What does the worship committee do? Why does it meet every month if they don't have things to decide? I don't understand. (laughs) They're entrepreneurial. They're also very adaptable. Oh, we're starting at 9.30 instead of 9.15? Okay. Oh, we're uh, singing 12 songs I don't know today? Okay. (laughs) Oh, we're going to do a Saturday night service during Advent, and it's going to be quiet and contemplative with guitars, and uh, okay. That'd be great. They're very willing to try stuff. They're very adaptable. They walk in, someone's sitting in their seat at church. Oh, wait, that would never happen because they don't do that. (laughs) They sit wherever. Oh, my friend's over here. Oh, this is closer to the coffee. I'm going to sit over here. They're adaptable. They are ready to invest in something they believe in. It's very tempting to say they're just off to the side, but they're ready. They want to invest. They want to be asked. No, don't do that yet. There we go. Research suggests that the involvement of senior leadership, pastors, senior leadership, plays a major role. But the bright spot churches we studied are eschewing leadership models that elevate personal charisma, centralized control. Instead, they've adopted what we began to call keychain leadership. In this model, leaders remove the keys of power and authority from their own keychains, sometimes quite literally, and hand them to young people who are ready. For those of us who are the older members of the church, what can we hand over? How do we raise up the next generation? They are ready to invest. They're radically hospitable. The flip side of you do you is you're all welcome. Come on in. They will teach us how to be hospitable. They can do this. They do this every day. As I've been thinking and preparing and praying for this, there have been two verses that have come to mind again and again and again. One generation shall tell your works to another. They will declare your mighty acts. Research shows 
that's still the number one influence on young people is their families. They want to know. What does faith mean to you, Grandma? What does faith mean to you, Mom? Why do you still go to church? Why does this matter? And some of us come from traditions where we've kind of shied away from witnessing or testimonies. We have more of a private piety. It's time for that to be done. And so what I've done is prepare a list of questions that you can take if you're a younger person and go and ask an older person. Maybe you want to interview them. Maybe you want to film it or record it. If you do, you can post it. I've got a hashtag. (laughs) These cards will be available at the exits. For those of you on the remote sites, if you go to the contact information for me on the Jan series sites, they're posted there. It's time to tell the story. They're asking, you guys survived Vietnam. You survived the 1960s. How did that impact your faith? How did your faith impact how you did that? What's a challenging time in your life? How did you get through that? What difference did Jesus make? What difference does he make now? Tell your story. And if your child isn't ready for that, maybe you record yourself. And you send it to them and say, I did a thing. I'd love to talk about it with you. The second verse, God sets the lonely in families. Millennials are lonely. Lots of people are lonely. And we can become overwhelmed and think, I don't know how to do that. That just sounds really, really difficult. It's not that hard. (laughs) One of my former students, Hannah, wrote an article in her denominational magazine called Ask Me Out for Coffee. It ends like this. I need you to teach me what love looks like in person, in the church to bake through the barriers of my technology and trust issues and anxiety and debt and depression. And by the way, if you do this, you better believe I'll be back next Sunday. Win my heart for Christ and his church and you've given birth to something that will go on forever even after you die. I don't know what we'll talk about or where the relationship will go. Maybe we can teach each other. I'm a millennial. I'm over here in the church lobby by the books. I'm the one glancing at my smartphone, holding program pamphlets, chatting with other people my age. Maybe I look closed off. Don't let that scare you. Come say hi. Ask me out for coffee. Millennials are giving the church a challenge. Show us what following Jesus really looks like. Show us what following Jesus really looks like. Not the ecclesiastical industry that's out there, not American Christendom, not political allegiances or social clubs or a generational inheritance or duty, but show us what it means to follow Jesus. Show us again that the church is the gathering of people who believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that his resurrection changes everything. Show us what it looks like to be engaged in our neighborhoods in justice and in truth. Show us what it looks like to confess our sin and receive forgiveness. Show us what it looks like to really be the church. Millennials are the hope of the church because they are going to bring us back to what the church is all about, and that is Jesus Christ. And it's time It's time to limber up. It's time to change some things. It's time to try stuff. It's time. This is such an exciting time to be part of the church of Jesus Christ because we have a generation that is ready to step into creative leadership and we get to cheer them on. What a great time it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Thank you.
Thank you, Mary. I'm Rick Truer. I'm Director of Alumni Relations and Community Relations here at Calvin College, and I'll be moderating the questions for today. If you have one, feel free to submit it on um, Twitter using the hashtag AskJSeries, or you can email AskJSeries at calvin.edu. If you have a card in the auditorium here and would like a question asked, feel free to hold that up, and the ushers will collect them and bring them forward. I'm going to start with one that came in on Twitter. Um, is there a healthy compromise between polarized, obstinate disagreement or disapproval and you do you? When and how do you advise young adults to form and express certainties or judgments? Mm -hmm. Yes, great question. Um, I think when I'm engaged with a student who's uh, trying to figure out how to engage another person, they've been, they've been shaped to say that confrontation is about judgment and not about love. And the truth is, when we're trying to confront someone, we're trying to do it out of a loving thing. Like, we want your life to be better than it is. And the choices that you're making now aren't going to lead you to lead the life you want to live. I love you too much to let you keep living this way. So push back on me and tell me if I'm out of line. But I pray for you. I love you. I want the best for you. And this isn't it. So, um, and the other thing is, what we also need to teach each other and teach people is that actually leads to deeper relationship. If I love you enough to say, Rick, there's some things in your life, I just, I love you, I want to talk about them with you, are you open to that? Now you and I know each other well enough, you'd be like, yes, mm -hmm. I hope. <laughs> and we would sit and we would have a good conversation and hopefully it would result in a deeper and more intimate bond and then I would say, are there things, Rick, that I can do differently? That I can, there are ways in which I could love you better, I'm sure, would you, would you help me know what those are? So training ourselves and modeling this, if you still have children at home, if, if you're engaged in residence life leadership, how are we modeling these kinds of conversations with each other? That's a really important thing. Great, let's go to a question from a student. Um, do you think the rise in non-denominational or undenominational church member membership among millennials reflects sort of a rebellion against more traditional congregations or lack of theological knowledge or interest or something else? I think they vote with their feet on um, preaching. It's a big one. I think there is a general, um, there's a decrease in biblical literacy uh, in the United States. There's a decrease in theological literacy in the United States. So when I, I say, like, what do we believe? They're actually, one of the things they think is, why is a Baptist different from a Methodist, different from Reformed? Like, how's that work out? How's a Protestant different from a Catholic? Like, a lot of students who have been grown up in a church that maybe their congregation was a 25-year-old, Mega church, they don't have a sense of church history, they don't have a sense of denominations, they just don't know. And so um, it's not a matter of choosing against denominations as much as a matter of going where there is vibrant worship and preaching. Another question uh, submitted by email here. How would you advise millennials to talk to their parents, fellow church members, or elders about the problems that they have with modern labels associated with Christianity? Mm. Gently, <laughs> slowly, truthfully, and um, I think prayerfully. If, if you're going to talk to uh, a generation above you, two or three, pray about it first and say, I really need to talk to my parents about why being called a Christian is loaded for me. And I, I'm going to pray about that beforehand, maybe for weeks until the Holy Spirit gives me an opening and I'm going to say, guys, I need to talk to you about this. Like, this feels loaded to me. It feels weighted to me. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. And you can practice first. You can come practice in my office. Just come on down or, you know, call me up. Um, practice it and figure out what, what are my big concerns? What do I really want to say? And what would I love to have the response be from the elders in my church or from my family members or from other people? Like, what would it look like? Question submitted on Twitter, how have you personally been changed in a positive or negative ways by spending so much time with millennials? <laughs> they are the bomb.com. Uh, they're, they're playful, they're creative, they're, uh, they're interested, they're curious. And um, my current job is like having an oral comprehensive exam from seminary every day. Every day, I get asked the big questions. What, what about hell? Do we believe that? Do you believe in hell? Why do we believe that? Um, I don't believe in God anymore. I'm having big doubts. What about suffering? Why is there evil in the world? This is my day-to-day -day life. <laughs> this is what happens. 
And so they keep me theologically sharp. Uh, they keep me pastorally open. Um, they push me to be the best follower of Jesus Christ that I can be, and I love them for that. And this was sort of tied to that. Also came from a student and wondered, are there ways that Kelvin students are distinctive or different from the millennial population as a whole, and why? <laughs> are special to me. Um, I think the student that we tend to draw at Kelvin are people who are curious, who are engaged, um, who are fearless, who love the church and are ready to change the church, and um, really are committed to this thing. They, they know that life is messy. No one comes to Calvin College because they think they're going to get a black and white, cut and dry education. They come to Calvin College to say, the world is messy. How does my faith impact a messy world? Help me with that. That's how Calvin students are different. Well, that's a great way to end it. Mary will be available in the lobby to sign her book, so feel free to go meet her there, a little handbook for preachers. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow.